to another episode of Bioethics for the People. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Devin Stahl, who, according to her student reviews, should be cloned and teach all of the bioethics. And he's Tyler Gibb, who, according to his students, is best described as the goat of bioethics. All right, Devin, I've got a case for you. Okay, well, that's kind of the theme of the whole season, so I, I would hope so. Yeah, so this is um, this is a tough one. I mean, not that any of our cases are really like sunshines and roses and um, feel-good stories, but this one yeah. is particularly gross. Can we say gross? Yes. It, are there any like um, warnings you want to give to listeners before we start then? Um, I guess, I, I mean, it's kind of always a good idea to, to warn people what they're getting into. But this case involves um, forced sterilization and eugenics, and also some really terrible mistreatment of people with disabilities and people without disabilities. Okay. Um, if it's the case I'm thinking of, given what you've just said, is there also uh, an account of rape? Yes. Yep. Okay. All right. So with that caveat, what do you know about the case of Buck versus Bell? Oof. Yeah. I know a little about this case because I do work in disability, mm-hmm. and this is kind of this seminal case. Um, I, I suppose I don't know kind of the intimate details. I know the broad strokes of the case of a, a woman with an intellectual disability who was um, kind of seen as the, the case that made its way into the courts to allow forced sterilization of people in the early 20th century. So this is kind of that case. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So um, all of that, what you said is right. So let's let's just kind of walk through the case. So this is the case of Carrie Buck uh, versus Bell. And so we're talking about um, Virginia in the 1920s, mostly. So okay. this case, I think it was decided in 1927 was when the Supreme Court case was actually published. But um, kind of the, the things going on in this case are early 1900s moving into uh, the 1920s-ish. Okay? So okay. get that time frame in your mind. Mm, um, yes. I'm getting... Wait, wait. Let me put myself... <laughs> okay. Short haircut. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I got it. Yep. Roaring 20s. Roaring but, 20s. Um, the, the roaring 20s of the Gatsby's do not make their way into the, uh, the lives of the, the poor, disadvantaged uh, individuals living in rural Virginia in the 1920s. So <laughs> Right. So different frame of mind. Okay. Different frame of mind. Yep. Yeah. We're not doing, uh, we're not dancing and um, drinking martinis here. Okay. Okay. All right. So this case centers around a particular law. And this law was... I think probably controversial even at the time, Um, but it was a law that a lot of people uh, were really jazzed about. So, uh, and so much so, and we've talked about in other uh, in other podcasts where people, um, particularly lawyers or individuals who want a particular law on the books or a law taken off the books, will use this idea of. Uh, targeted legis- uh, litigation. Okay. And so the idea is that we have this law, we want to make sh- either get it proven unconstitutional and, and canceled, thrown out, and or we want it to be like 
given the, the thumbs up green light by the Supreme Court or whoever. And we are going to look around and try to find the best case we possibly can to sue on behalf of and then actually move it through the court system. Is so, this what some people call like activist legislation? Mm-hmm. Litigation. Okay. Yeah, activist litigation, litigation. And yeah, so um, targeted activist litigation. And it, it is this strategy has been really successful in, I think, overturning a lot of Supreme Court um, precedents that mm-hmm. were really problematic. And so if you think of like Brown versus the Board of Education, um, mm-hmm. the the case which threw out this concept of separate but equal education, right? Mm-hmm. So Thorogood Marshall was actually one of the lawyers involved, ended up on the Supreme Court. And so they, they went around and tried to find the exact case in order to make their point about this particular Okay, Yeah, like the perfect case that's going to, mm-hmm. you know, prompt us to say, yeah, this is a bad law. Right. And... Okay. Uh, It happens really commonly in a lot of the cases that we know about, um, like, for example, Loving versus Virginia, the Mm -hmm. case that uh, overturned or got rid of or um, changed uh, interracial marriage outlawed in some states. So Mm -hmm. it, it can be really beneficial, I think, to society to do this. But... (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes it's not so great, right? Yeah, so, yeah, there's activists on both sides, right? And we don't exactly. always agree with yeah. them. Yeah, Yeah. if everyone agreed on what uh, public policy should be, then what would lawyers do with their free time? Yeah. All right, so this law that we'll talk about in just a minute um, is called the Virginia Sterilization Act. Bit of an ominous <sighs> name. I think... Yeah. I think legislators have gotten better about hiding the intent behind <laughs> laws through like fancy names and acronyms uh, a- yeah, acronyms yeah. of of uh, laws that they pass so the yeah Virginia, but this cut right to the point we want to yeah yeah we want to Virginia sterilization act of 1924 okay, okay. so the folks involved in this movement behind this uh, were in favor of this idea of eugenics okay I know you yeah, are a very well, yep. well-read, <laughs> uh, well-read expert on uh, all things dealing with bioethics. So eugenics, tell us what that is. Yeah, well, I did write a book on this, so <laughs> I should know a little bit about it. Um, <laughs> so eugenics, this idea. So there's positive eugenics and negative eugenics. So early 20th century, we're really ex- Americans in particular are really excited. Hitler mm-hmm. will take this up in a really aggressive way. Uh, but he got his ideas from American policy. So the idea was that we want to perfect our society through scientific means, so improve the human species. Two ways of going about it. You can encourage the right kind of people, quote unquote, to reproduce so that they will pass on. I mean, I think that they're not this is way before like the human genome project we don't totally understand heritability but we do understand that kids tend to be like their parents and so um and we're not quite sure like what traits are passed on we're pretty sure like intelligence and even like poverty can be passed on Mm -hmm. these are we would be very cautious about saying those things these days but criminality is another one right criminality yeah sure so you know these things are potentially heritable so let's get like and of course, it's the exact people you imagine, good, wealthy, Protestant, white people to reproduce. Let's encourage that. And let's discourage um, the wrong kinds of people from reproducing. So poor people and black people and people with disabilities, like let's let's encourage them not to reproduce or 
forcibly sterilize them so they can't reproduce. Right. Um, yeah. So this is there's a number of policies and laws that are being formulated um, by a and people today would say, oh, this is a pseudoscience eugenics. But at the time, it was thought of as good science. Mm-hmm. Right. This was not some like fringy science. This was the mainstream science of its day. I think that one thing that's really interesting about the topic of eugenics is exactly what you just said, is that we often associate this with, you know, the Third Reich and Nazi, uh, you know, um, purification of the the Aryan race type of uh, evil, bad Nazi stereotypes, right? Uh, but like you said, a lot of these ideas were originating in the United States. And we really actively, as a, a collective national consciousness, try to forget that mm-hmm. a lot of those ideas came from the United States. So in this case, we've got uh, Carrie Bach, who is an, a woman from a really poor family who finds herself pregnant um, in 1924. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie is from uh, what we would describe as you know a, a broken home. Her mother is actually institutionalized, and it's a little bit unclear why she was institutionalized, except for she um, was quote unquote uh, promiscuous. Um, oh, so. Yeah. Well, at this time, I've been reading some stuff recently, like not uncommon to institutionalize people, too. So there's like this horrible history of institutionalizing people who, you know, had, quote unquote, mental disorders. Um, It was really easy to institutionalize women, Um, even married women like husbands could put their wives in asylums for almost no reason at all. Just if Mm -hmm. they went before a judge and said, like, she seems crazy, please keep her here. And so there were lots of people institutionalized against their will who were not being benefited by being in institutions. So the fact that she was quote unquote promiscuous, who knows what that means? It could have just been some guy who was like, I don't want to deal with this woman. Please take her away. And she had like no autonomy over that situation. Exactly. And uh, in a nearby area in Virginia, um, there was an institution that was known as the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and the Feeble Minded. So, <laughs> oh, a colony—that's always like a great way right. to start. Yeah, there's there's uh, at least half of the words in the the title of this that <laughs> cause a little bit of a emotional like a little, reaction, a little right? Little cringy, yeah, little cringy. So, um, the inner the guy in charge of this, so Dr. Pretty uh, Albert Sidney Pretty was the superintendent of this colony, and he was a hardcore proponent of eugenics. And particularly okay. the negative eugenics, meaning mm-hmm. like we're going to sterilize people who he believes, for whatever reason, to uh, should not be able to procreate in the gene pool. Mm-hmm. And so his entire colony, this institution, was built up around kind of as this with this idea in kind of the foundation of it. And so a couple of things, uh, interesting quotes from him. So he was all in favor of institutionalizing women and then sterilizing them against their will. And he was a childhood friend of the individual who in Virginia helped write and pass the legislation that legalized this. So the Virginia Sterilization Act author was a friend of this dude. Yeah, so they're in cahoots. 
they're in cahoots. Well, they clearly have a similar view about uh, about eugenics. And so mm-hmm. he is quoted as saying that he would choose women or accept women into his organization, his institution, if they were, quote, immoral. If immoral. they were, uh, if they had a um, unnatural fondness for men, oh. that's another quote. Um, so promiscuity we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Unnatural fondness. Like, I just yeah. love the men too much. <laughs> too much, yeah. Um, and then, actually, there's a, a, a quote about a 16-year-old who is institutionalized and end up uh, st- uh, involuntarily sterilized beca- because of her habit of, quote, talking to little boys. Talking to little boys. Yeah. Oh, so. no. As, as a 16-year-old. So, like, is there an implication that she was a pedophile? Um, I think that that is uh, one level of justification beyond what these guys uh, okay. felt like they had to justify. She just talked to little boys too much. I, I think that they wanted to sterilize this woman and for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah. And so, okay. uh, I mean, we talk about the gross history of American medicine, right? So mm-hmm. involuntary sterilization is at the top of the list. Okay, so Carrie Buck... Uh, Woman from a very poor family, uh, very poor uh, area of Virginia. And she, her mom is actually institutionalized in this uh, Virginia colony for the epileptic and feeble-minded. And she gets admitted as well. And so mother and daughter are both uh, institutionalized together. And there's actually a couple of pictures online of the two of them sitting next to each other, like on this call. It's kind of a haunting image of these Mm -hmm. two. And at the time, Carrie Buck was pregnant, okay? Uh, Unmarried. It's pretty clear, and I I think probably uh, on... Uh, uncontroversial. The father of the child was actually a family member who raped her while she was living uh, in in the same home or in the home of another family member. So, this is always what I thought is that um, the family that was fostering her when her mother was sent away, it was their son who mm-hmm. raped her and got her pregnant, and they didn't want to deal with her and blamed her. Um, right. And so sent her away. Right. Uh, I think it was actually a nephew of this family, okay. a, a foster family, but definitely a family member. Gotcha. And she was definitely raped and definitely impregnated and definitely then sent away. Um, Ugh, tragic. Uh, right. So uh, she is pregnant in this, in this institution with her mother and gives birth to a child. And... As part of the rationale for the sterilization that actually occurred um, to her later, uh, they started doing intelligence tests, IQ tests, type kind of uh, evaluations of the baby almost right away, uh, which of is the interesting. Baby, oh, yeah. I already have such big issues with IQ tests, and mm-hmm. giving them to babies just seems like out of control. There are reports of uh, them holding up like a coin to this child who's only a few months old and like moving it back and forth and whether the ch- the baby like tracked it or not was then used as justification for whether the child was going to have a normal intelligence or not. Ugh, gross. Yeah, yeah. Pretty gross. So, unsurprisingly, um, Dr. Pretty at the at the colony thinks that Carrie Buck is a prime, not just example, but a prime candidate for sterilization. And not because of any reason that would benefit her, but f- purely for the benefit of the collective gene pool. Yeah, she's 
her offspring would be bad for society, so we must sterilize her. Right. For the so good she, of the whole. Yikes. Right, for the good of the whole. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... I think we're uh, compounding cringy upon cringy uh, as we get deeper into this case, right? Yeah, not so. off to a great start. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't uh, doesn't get better if we're being oh. quite honest. So, <laughs> okay. um, in a lot of ways, in some of these cases, particularly kind of from this era. Uh, the individual themselves really gets um, deprioritized throughout mm. the entire process. She's so, and she's like sixteen at this point. Eighteen. Eighteen. Okay, so she has yeah. just become an adult. They probably did they wait until that happened. I don't. This? I don't think that uh, they didn't care. Okay. They didn't care cool. about that. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Um, okay. So this works its way up through the the Virginia court system and eventually gets it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And there's a couple of notable characters on the Supreme Court at this time. Um, mm-hmm. As somebody who kind of geeks out on the law, I really like the the makeup conversation of the Supreme Court as being important in the decisions that they make. But um, a couple of folks on this uh, Supreme Court you may have heard of, like, I don't know, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Yep, I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, Learned Hand is another justice who you may have heard of. And the chief justice this time was an individual named uh, William Howard Taft. Mm-hmm. President William Taft is the only former president to then serve on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Notoriously thought. great president that everyone's <laughs> definitely heard of. <laughs> yeah, that everyone is super excited is now making uh, is now the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah, that is. A, I you know I I don't think I really ever put that together that he mm-hmm. would be the only one. Interesting, because yeah, he's often labeled as like one of the worst presidents of all time. Yeah. Not. Uh, not a shining example of uh, presidential effectiveness, or, but uh, he was uh, also kind of a big proponent of eugenics, mm-hmm. and it. I think it's easy to think that you this idea of purifying the the gene pool and and promoting certain characteristics is uh, fringy that not a lot of people have that perspective, but it really was really common. A lot, especially at the the more educated, the more wealthy, the more powerful, quote unquote, folks in um, kind of society at that time. It was a really common perspective, really common mm-hmm. view. Yeah, I'll just add, just because I read a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> there are like two notable groups that are not eugenics proponents, and it would be Catholics, um, who are, you know, very much a marginalized group in America in the early 20th century, um, in part because it forced sterilization goes against their belief in, you know, that that this would violate their sort of moral sexual code of, you know, not prohibiting children. Um, so there, there's the Pope has said some things about this and is mm-hmm. and, and there was actually some initially some interest from um, American Catholic bishops um, but but when you add forced sterilization to the mix, you can't abide that as a Catholic. So good on them. Um, although it's yeah, I will say there's some other things that Catholics are saying at this point where it's like, well, the idea is really good. You just the means are bad. Um, so it's not like they're totally against eugenics on principle. Um, you can read about more about that in my book. Um, and then uh, <laughs> I love it when you promote your book on. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I got, somebody's got it right. And then yeah. uh, fundamentalists. So right around this time, we also get this uh, liberal fundamentalist divide in American Protestantism. So whereas the liberals are trying to keep up with like contemporary science and and like kind of the latest um, 
cultural things the fundamentalists are you know retracting and becoming more conservative and saying you know we can't we can't believe this like these new scientific advances and and a huge part of that too is just like are we going to go along with darwinism so i'll say that their reasons aren't actually necessarily all that great either for not promoting eugenics it's not very few people have like a principle there are some for sure People were like, I don't think we should be sterilizing poor people. Um, mm-hmm. Those people exist. It's not like a principled stance by like a notable group yet at this point. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Common uh, perspective, like so, bringing up eugenics like in a cocktail party um, would not be frowned upon, right? People no. are talking about it, and yeah, yeah, it's the science of the day, right? It'd be like mm-hmm. today talking about. I don't know, whatever. Like gene editing or something like that. Sure. Like, well, I, I'd say, I, I bet gene editing today is more controversial than eugenics was in the Back 1920s. In the yeah. Interesting. Another interesting wrinkle to this case is that it, by some accounts, the Dr. Pretty, who was the, the director, the executive of this um, colony, actually heard about Carrie Buck through her mother, who was already, like I said, already mm-hmm. institutionalized there, and basically solicited her to become an inmate so he could sterilize and use as as the example. So at, at, at about 14 different levels, Carrie Buck, the person, really gets um, subsumed into other people's uh, yeah. interests and goals. She's just this pawn in this bigger game of eugenics. Mm-hmm. Gross. Yeah. So, what do you think the Supreme Court decided? Is it is the uh, Virginia Sterilization Act of 1924? Does it violate the U.S. Constitution? It doesn't. I do know there's this quote, and I you probably have it at hand better than I do. Something about three generations of imbeciles is enough. Oh yes. All right. So I'm gonna text. <laughs> I'm gonna text you this quote. Okay. Uh, so this is from the decision uh, published in 1927, Buck versus Bell. This is uh, Associate Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Okay. Okay. All right. So we have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices often not felt to be such by those concerned in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. Oof. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime, whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or to let them starve for their imbecility, Woof. Uh, Society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Wow, that is worse than I remember. So I remember that line about three generations of imbeciles is enough. But these other lines about sapping the strength, about executing them for crimes or letting them starve. So these are the options, right? So either prevent them from being born or obviously will execute them for their crimes or they will starve from imbecility, right? Mm-hmm. Like as if the state has no interest in either of those things not happening. <laughs> yeah, bonkers. 
<laughs> I mean, that is wild. There are a couple cases that get cited kind of in law school and constitutional law classes. I was like, here's a really, really ugly quote from the Supreme Court, right? So there's mm-hmm. a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, which is about mm-hmm. the property um, interests of slaveholders, and it, it, it's really problematic. But this one, I, it's hard to find a more disturbing quote from a Supreme Court opinion than this one. That is, that's brutal. Mm. And am I right to think that we haven't like overturned this? Is this, we don't have any states that still forcibly sterilize that ended way back in the 70s, yikes. But I don't think that it was ever overturned at the Supreme Court level, right? Right, so there's a subsequent case called Skinner versus Oklahoma that actually it doesn't directly overturn Buck versus Bell, but what it does is it basically renders it ineffective okay, and gotcha. says that forced sterilizations do actually violate. Although, let up. me, I don't always say my opinion on this podcast about these cases, but yeah. it was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and just say, like, I think that this ruling was wrong. Uh, what was the most wrong about it, do you think? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's um, start in the. What are, what are some parts of the thing that you just read that are? Uh, okay. I mean, you had to stop a couple times and take a deep breath as you were reading it. So. Yeah. Um, okay. So. <laughs> I mean, so let me let, let's set a little bit of context. So this is okay. right after. I mean, this is the generation. Most of this generation had seen World War One, mm-hmm. and the the horrors of World War One, and the number of friends and family members and countrymen who died in a brutal war. Right. Mm-hmm. So when they when they're talking about like the best citizens giving their lives, that's the context that they're talking right. about. Yeah, yeah. And also, so that that one other point of uh, yeah, the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to, you know, and then the quote goes on. That issue had actually just recently been litigated in the Supreme Court as well. Mm -hmm. So that was actually also fresh on their minds. And so the idea is like, if we're asking someone to do something like vaccination, maybe we can ask them to do other things with their body. So... Right, right. There's like the state has an interest. And I don't think this is wrong on principle. The state... Because I think there are times in cases of like epidemics when maybe the state really does have an interest in forcing people to do things to their bodies they wouldn't otherwise want to do for the sake of keeping everyone else safe. It's like you make a small sacrifice and with vaccinations, you're not even doing that. But um, you might be asked to make a sacrifice on behalf of the whole to keep everybody else safe. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know that that's wrong in principle, like where that falls Right, like how, what exactly things you're being asked to sacrifice and who gets to decide is, of course, going to be controversial. But in principle, yeah, I think like most people would say that, yes, we can ask people to sacrifice some things, even some of their bodily autonomy for the sake of everybody else around them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's not wrong on principle. I mean, so what is wrong on principle? Um, The idea that we're like, that America was being swamped with incompetence because of like people's genetic makeup. that we just like cannot abide some people's intelligence not being as great as other people's is really gross um and and probably inaccurate right that some of these things like poverty being inherited is of course not true um some people still seem to think that but not something you pass down genetically um (laughs) even if we have systems that keep people in poverty um Uh, the idea that like the only alternatives to sterilization are executing people or letting them starve to death um, seems like pretty extreme Um, yeah 
and then that they were imbeciles. I mean, that's a word obviously we don't use anymore. Um, it was, I think, the technical like medical term at the time. But yikes, it just comes across as so like such a gross way to talk about people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what's troubling for me about this case, uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of things, but this idea that eugenics is so good and so scientific and such a benefit for society that we're going to um, use whatever means we can in order to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And the people who are kind of at the, 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 the butt end of that are really vulnerable people. Also people who maybe... I don't know. So we talked about this a little bit earlier that it's unclear and maybe it is a little bit clear and it's not the case that uh, Carrie Buck really wasn't uh, mentally impaired in any way, that she was actually, um, you know, just a a poor woman in a bad situation and got Mm -hmm. caught up in this other movement, this other, the interests of somebody else. Yeah, she was just incredibly vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. She couldn't, nobody cared what she had to say. Mm-hmm. As as far as I remember of this case, like yeah. she did, she didn't take the stand. She, nobody asked. I mean, how, is this true? I'm remembering this, and maybe you'll get to this. But like, some of the doctors who testified that she was, you know, mentally impaired, never met her. Mm-hmm. Yep, they relied <sighs> upon reports. And there's this famous eugenicist at the time, kind of the the one of the people who were really was really advocating uh, in this. His name was Harry Laughlin, and so he submitted testimony to the, written testimony to the court in this. And um, afterwards, so arguing for the the virtues of this law. And afterwards, he was reflecting upon his his motivations and kind of this Buck versus Bell being the importance of it. And he said that the decision in Buck versus Bell took uh, negative eugenics out of the experimental phase into the the application stage, um, which is also pretty gross. And after the Supreme Court case came down in 27, many, many other states followed Virginia's model and instituted uh, legislation that permits sterilization Mm -hmm. against somebody's will. Yeah, like most states, right? Most states had some sort of compulsory sterilization Mm -hmm. law. Yeah. So by 1947, so 20 years after that, um, in the United States, the United States was forcibly sterilizing tens of thousands of people a year. Yeah. So I said earlier that Skinner was a case in 1942-ish, I think, 1942. And... It didn't specifically overturn Buck versus Bell, but kind of discouraged those types of laws on the books. And then they kind of fell out of favor and states started to not use them. But um, some of them were never actually formally taken off the books until the 2000s. I think the most recent one was maybe North Carolina. I'd have to double check that. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So even if we weren't doing it, they were on the books, which is pretty bad. Yeah. When you think, so Uh, 1946, like, this is like post-Holocaust, like, so we're really embarrassed. So, But do you know why we're embarrassed is because of all the crazy stuff we saw the Nazis doing that the world condemned. And then we start looking at ourselves and be like, wait a second, maybe these laws aren't great. Right. So they, so all the eugenicists started calling themselves something different. So it's not like eugenics totally went away at that point, um, but like it was like population science. So they all just like all the societies like changed their names. They just changed their names. Oh, it's such a sad part of like it wasn't that they were all just shamed into shutting down. They just like Mm kind of pivoted a little and changed their names. Yeah, it's almost like a rebranding, remarketing situation. So um, 
after about 1947, um, you know, particularly after all of this stuff in the Nuremberg trials, so the trials mm-hmm. of the uh, the Nazis uh, post World War II, and a lot of you know, stuff that um, Joseph Mengele was doing, his experimentations, um, the fervor for being publicly a eugenicist really kind of uh, faded a little bit during that time. Mm-hmm. Is my understanding? Is that yours as well? Yeah, I think. That's right. So it's not as if uh, all the scientists just stopped doing the science, but like the public sort of support because the churches were all on board. Like every everyone was on board. Like I said, there's there's exceptions to that, but people were on board. Institutions mm-hmm. were on board. And I think while the science didn't totally stop, the applications were really cut back. And I think the public like churches had eugenic sermon contests like those mm-hmm. were less popular after World War Two. Yeah, particularly because we were trying to say, look how bad the Nazis were. Right. They did all these terrible things. We're not that terrible. Yeah. Plot twist. Maybe we kind of work. Yeah. Um, uh, an interesting little tidbit as well is that one of the lawyers at the Nuremberg trials who was defending the Nazis used Buck versus Bell in his argument. Ooh, that's um, embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, but if a defense attorney is, you know, defending somebody who's accused of eugenics and you in your Supreme Court have said eugenics is okay, like it's hard to make that kind of moral claim, right? Yeah, absolutely. So as we wrap up this case, so so eugenics, uh, forced sterilization, uh, they don't happen much anymore, but I think there's uh, maybe... A different side. I would love to believe that it doesn't happen anymore. Are you going to pop that bubble of mine? Well, yeah. I mean, there's been, not at the scale, right? So there were, like you said, tens of thousands of people every year. There's estimates around 60,000 in that time period. Um, So for sure, not at that scale. And now it's the case that, and I'm sure you've dealt with some of these cases, um, as I understand it, in I think every state in the U.S., if you want to sterilize um, a person with an intellectual disability, you ha- you can't just make that decision between like the parents and the doctor. You actually need to bring that before a judge. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's my understanding as well. And of mm-hmm. course, we can't speak for every single state, but the, the couple in, couple states that I've been living in and, and doing this type of work, that has been the case. That there's an extra protection for that type of medical decision uh, that requires court review. Mm-hmm. And well, I think for good case, reasons. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is probably a good idea. Um, I think there's some who want to push back and say, like, it's overly burdensome to, you know, well, to do that. But and I'm not sure how often it's really happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've certainly been part of cases. And, and, and Ashley X, which um, we'll talk about in this series, um, was another one where, you know, this is a girl with an intellectual disability who had a hysterectomy. And as far as I know, they never went to a judge to ask permission for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it never comes up, at least in the reporting on the case, which is surprising because that is te- mo- what most states would require you to do. Yeah. So yeah. I'm surprised about that. But the, remember these cases, and maybe you're going to get to this, but there were there were some cases that came out recently of a physician who was um, sterilizing women at the border. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So against their without their knowledge. So mm-hmm. definitely against their will. Um, yeah. And just not telling them. Yeah. There's a really good documentary called uh, No Mas Bebes that is about oh. the forced sterilization of migrants, particularly from Latin American countries, into the mm-hmm. United States. And I think s- focusing kind of s- 
uh, you know, South Southern California area. I think it's kind of based in Los Angeles, maybe. But uh, yeah, is exactly bringing light to that issue of women who are very, very vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they're asylum seekers, refugees, um, people who are uh, immigrating for a lot of different reasons and don't have anybody to speak on their behalf. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's, I, I find it profoundly troubling that, oh, yeah. th- that, I mean, up until even, I think the most recent reports of kind of use, using some of this legislation to justify forced sterilization without the knowledge of women, I mean, it was happening in as late as like the 70s and 80s in some places. Mm-hmm. I, wrapping up, there's a, a really interesting kind of, uh, kind of human interest aspect to this case later. Um, so there's a, a guy who works, a, a professor who works in bioethics quite a bit, but also in law and a kind of medical history named Paul Lombardo. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. At He's Georgia great. Tech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does some really interesting work. And he, uh, one of his fascinations or one of his areas of expertise is this case. And he's written a, a book about it and, and a lot of articles about it. And he actually tracked down and met Carrie Buck, who is in her 80s. Wow. And and he was able to interview her and kind of get her side of the story. And, and so... Good, somebody did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's... it's uh, reported or or documented that um, Professor Lombardo was one of the few people who was able to attend her funeral in yeah so she lived until her 80s remarried I think twice remarried obviously never had more children and uh, by all accounts lived a fairly normal life but for the fact that she couldn't have children Mm -hmm. wow and how about her daughter yeah, so her daughter sadly died uh, in childhood from complication from measles. But mm. uh, also there was somebody examined her later and um, wrote v- pretty persuasively that the child had no intellectual deficits, that there was no reason to believe that she wasn't anything other than um, you know, a, a healthy child from the uh, circumstances that she was from. Yeah. Yeah, so really so. sad. I had, I had, um, I don't know if this is true. I think I thought I remember reading at one point she was on the honor roll, like there, like definitely mm-hmm. no indication that she had any intellectual disability at all. Not yeah. that that would have made any of this like okay, um, right? But it's just another sort of like they didn't bother. These these physicians did not care about Carrie or her mother or her daughter. And I, I think it, it kind of goes back to the point that uh, is has been troubling throughout this case is that these individuals were really um, appropriated for other people's interests mm-hmm. in a really gross way. So. Yep, but we've solved all of that. And, <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. Um, problem maybe solved. Not. No. <laughs> problem no, problem no. not solved. But, but I think, like we said, I mean, if, if we're thinking about implications of this, it, it has gotten better. There are more rules. You can't just sterilize people against their will most of mm-hmm. the time. Um, so in that sense, things have gotten better. We don't treat people with intellectual disabilities a whole lot better. Um, we don't institutionalize women for basically no reason mm-hmm. most of the time. Yeah, so like the systems have gotten a little bit better. Institutionalization isn't like as much of a thing today as it was, mm-hmm. um, which isn't to say we can't involuntarily commit people for reasons that are sometimes suspect. But the sort of mass scale institutionalization of women who just like are immoral not yeah. quite as common today. The Virginia State uh, Colony for uh, Epileptic and Feeble-Minded 
uh, individuals uh, is closed. You'll be happy to know. Good. Um, but it closed in uh, 2022. No. Oh. Or 2020. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah. But it, it kind of changed. It, it wasn't always the same thing, and the name okay. definitely changed. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So it opened in, 20, uh, in 1910, um, but even on the website for you know announcing the closure of this institution, it doesn't use its name as it existed in uh, Carrie Buck's time. So it's referred to as the Virginia State Epileptic Colony. Um, they leave out the feeble-minded parts. Little, That's pretty little, bad. I mean... Whitewashing of history. But. Yeah, absolutely. Have you been to... Um, the, the town where my husband's from has an institution that they've like reconverted into like a shopping mall? No. It, it, <laughs> is it like a state mental yeah. hospital? That, yeah. yeah. No. I, uh, the the deinstitutionalization um, movement in like the seventies and stuff, you know, closing down mental hospitals, has had such an interesting ripple effect throughout so many levels of um, mm-hmm. our society, right? So up in Michigan, there's there's one kind of up towards what we call the thumb, up in kind of northeast area that has been almost closed and not closed, and it really is like a lifeblood of. Well, I don't know if it's lifeblood anymore. It was a, a big employer in that county, and like, oh, wow. so so closing it has implications for not only the the patients and the people who work there, but also the communities that support and are kind of part of that uh, broader community as well. So, yeah, at some point we'll probably talk about Willowbrook and kind mm-hmm. of what led to people's being people being kind of horrified by what was really happening in these institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right, that's the case of. Buck versus Bell. Thanks, Tyler. That's a tough one. one. Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't have a bow to put on this one, Devin. A tough but important lesson in American history. Yeah, let's not whitewash this. We we did a bad thing. Yes, it was bad, and it was cited by bad people to do bad things. And but I I think one thing that maybe um, is a good point to end on is there's a lot of really interesting scholarship on the eugenics movement in the United States, obviously. Mm Um, you've had uh, a little bit to write about, um, mm-hmm. but also uh, websites that have like tracking data and um, analysis and um, quotes from this case and, and all of that stuff is, I think it's really an interesting part of American medical history. Absolutely. So we'll link to a bunch of that on the website. So check mm-hmm. it out. So, all right. Buck versus Bell in the books. Done. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. We can't do this podcast by ourselves. We've tried, and it's not pretty. Our team includes our research interns, Michaela Kim, Madison Foley, and Macy Hutto. Special thanks to Helen Webster for social media and production support. Our theme music was created and performed by the talented Chris Wright, friend to all, dad to two, and husband to one. Podcast art was created by Darian Goldenstall. You can find more of her work at dariangoldenstall.com. You can find more information about this episode and all of our previous seasons at bioethicsforthepeople.com. We love to connect with our listeners. All of our episodes can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share, and connect on social media. 